Welcome to the By the Hood podcast. Before we jump into this episode, just wanted to make you aware that on our website, bythehood.com, we have a free webinar on an intro to the stock market. So please go check it out. Just go to bythehood.com and you'll get the free intro to the stock market webinar. Take it easy and enjoy this episode. What's up, people? Welcome to this episode of the Buy the Hood podcast or webcast because I don't know how you're consuming this content. I'm your host as always. My name is Jimmy. And as we start off every show, that's with gratitude. Just want to say thank you to everyone and anyone who supports any of the projects that we have going on. Special shout out to all the students from Buy the Hood University, as well as the youth from the Buy the Hood Ownership Camp. Speaking of the Buy the Hood Ownership Camp, by the time you're seeing this, it'll be about 10 days away before we're having our Black Tie Gala. And yes, we're having a Black Tie Gala, uh, which is being put on by Better Than Success, as well as Philadelphia Real Estate Week. Um, all proceeds from that gala will go to supporting the Buy the Hood Ownership Camp for the youth. Also, uh, that camp is for kids ages five and up. We teach them about everything from, you know, uh, what is money to, to the stock market, to cryptocurrency, to real estate. Um, and it's completely free for all the youth ages five and up. It will be virtual, so you can uh, have them check in from anywhere around the world. Um, and we'll make sure that within the description, we'll put information about our gala, as well as how to get your kid or nephew, niece or friend, whoever it may be to register for the camp. But just please make sure you, uh, you know, try and support this. This out of all the work that we do, um, this is some of the most important work because we're trying to build the future leaders that will help our community and help shape us um, you know, and just it just put positive energy out there. Uh, my brother, Corey, is not with us today. He's actually working with some youth right now. But our platform, as you know, is designed to highlight brothers and sisters who are putting out positive energy, doing great work, building businesses. And this brother I have right here uh, met him recently at a Better Than Success event. And we had a conversation and he was talking to me about his business. And, um, you know, I remember met anyone that kind of looks like me that works in this business. So I said, man, I got to get you on to talk about that. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce the brother Omari. Hebb. Omari, how are you, good brother? I'm phenomenal. I'm phenomenal. How are you this morning? Oh, man, I can't complain, man. I woke up this morning, so I'm good, man. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for your time. You know, we know that time is the most valuable asset. Uh, so just want to say I appreciate you, you know, sharing your time and, uh, you know, telling your story with us. Absolutely. Yeah, man. So we talked about, um, you know, you being a hotel broker, which is interesting, right? Someone who deals in hotels. But before we get to that, let's talk about your background. Um, can you tell us where you were born and raised? Yeah, so I'm originally from Chicago, uh, born and raised on the South Side. And, you know, growing up, it was, you know, I had a, a lot of exposure to different things. You know, my, both my parents, I was, I grew up, you know, somewhat privileged. Both my parents had, had college degrees and, you know, we're both in the education field. My mother's a retired teacher. My father's a retired principal. And, you know, so education was always really important. And that's kind of the running joke is we call it the family business. So, um, you know, just grew up. My brother ultimately went away to uh, to college, went to uh, Cornell. And, you know, one day somebody asked me like, hey, you ever thought about um, hotel management when we were dropping off my brother? And, you know, at that time that Cornell was like the top school uh, for hotel management. And I just kind of was like, oh, you know, and my mother just broke it down to me real simple. She was like, you like to travel. You like to talk to people. You like to eat. Like that's all part of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, this young kid, mine was just blown and I'm just like, boom, locked in. It was like, okay, that's what I wanted to do. And I was like, okay, I, I want to own hotels. You know, I want to learn more about this industry. I want to be in this field. 
And um, I was always a hustler. And I just I, I just always figured out ways to, to make money, whether it was, you know, driving people around in my 82 Oldsmobile, you know, before Uber, you know, pulling up on the bus stop at, at, at the close of high school and be like, hey, you know, it's cold out here. Go ahead, drop that bus fare and um, you can hop in the back of this 82 Oldsmobile. And, you know, I got that good heat. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> whatever it was, it was I was always looking for an opportunity to, to generate revenue. So, uh, you know, fast forward, I had another brother who was in the hotel. He was actually in the hotel business operationally. He was, had a, a role called night auditor. And that blew my mind because when I would hang out with him and I'm going to date myself here a little bit, like, you know, it was like being with a celebrity. You got mm -hmm. to the front of the lines and stuff. And, you know, uh, Disney Quest opened up which not even a thing anymore yeah but Disney Quest opened up in chicago oh, opening night we were there with the unlimited game pass rainforest cafe i got straight to the front of the line you know we got the free desserts and it was just like oh this was you know fringe benefits of working in the hospitality industry mm -hmm. and he used to always tell me like man if you do this do it right like go to school I i've trained way too ma many managers because i don't have a college degree like just please do this the right way omari please do this the right way so that so that just always stuck with me um, but I mean, he just had crazy stories about working in the hotel industry. Um, and, and I mean, his hotel actually had the contract for Jerry Springer. So, okay. you know, Springer guests would be staying there. So, you know, that was a wild time. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just hearing those type of stories and that type of exposure, but understanding that there was a, a different route to go to go if you wanted to uh, get into a little bit more of the senior leadership position. So I just locked in and stayed with it. OK, so. Um, going back to the beginning, like, you know, having parents as educators, I guess that made you pre a pretty good student yourself, right? Not at all. Really? Let me tell you why real fast, though, because, like, um, you know, through my educational experience, like, most of the, the brightest kids that I had were, like, the kids of educators. So no. tell me your story. Um, I'm a slow learner. And short, that's the short story of it. So academics was not really my forte. I understood that it was necessary and and use my brother's verbiage, it was going to be a tool in the tool belt, right? I, I knew that I had to get a degree. I knew that I had to finish high school. I knew that I had to do certain things to get to the next level. So for me, the mindset was always like, okay, what's the next level and how do I get there? Okay, you're telling me I got to do this to get to that. It wasn't easy for me. So okay. my brother that went to Cornell, went Ivy League, I mean, like 30 on the ACT, just like a straight up brainiac, top three smartest people I've ever met. Like school was super easy for him. Yeah, he's uh, one of the kids I'm talking about, like the kids of educators who were like your brother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's very high IQ. I was, I, so I, I had a different type of, I was more so higher on the EQ, on the emotional intelligence. Ah, interesting. Right. Um, and then, you know, I ultimately, I, I figured out that I'm a kinesthetic learner, which means that I learn better with my hands. Uh, so, so for me, like I struggled with mathematics, right. But it was funny. It, it, even as a kid, when they went to go test me, it was like, you put the money in front of me. I got it. Cause I could put my money. I could put my hands on this, this fake dollar bill. I could put my hands on this plastic nickel. And I knew how that all added up. Now you start talking about things that got a little bit more in theory. That's when you lost me. Gotcha. And that's why I knew really quick, like, okay, it's like, you know, it's not going to be engineering and medicine for me. Like the STEM world is probably super dead for me. Um, and, and it, in the hotel business just started to make even more sense, even more sense at a very young age. And I had, I had parents, specifically my mother who just really like, she dragged me through that whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. dragged me through, like, that's the only reason I, I made it through. Like I, I got dragged across the finish line, um, the, the whole time. And fortunately I had enough motivation and I had enough hustle to figure out how to hustle my way through college too.
Got you, got you. So your college experience, what was that like? Man, I went to University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and you went LV. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So again, I knew I wanted to major in hotel management. I got into pretty much all of the top hotel schools, um, except for one. And this one was far away from home. I went there, I saw casinos, palm trees. And at that time, and I think it still does have like a kind of top ranked school for like most diversity. Uh, so it was just like, okay, like, cool. I, I can, I can go here. I got great weather. It's great work job opportunities. And I could get my hair braided. Like these were all the things that I was concerned about as an 18 year old, 17 year old, 18 year old. Right. So, um, it, man, it was, it was a great experience. And, and a big piece of it was, was going there, opening your mouth, asking for help, understanding that if you put yourself out there, if you're pushing your car, somebody's going to hop out and, and try to help you push. Right. And, um, and and I just took to it like like a duck to water. And I mean, those were like very foundational four years. I learned a lot, got exposed to a lot, uh, really understood what it meant to not just network, but build relationships. I mean, the academics were good, but it was more so for me about the relationship building. And And really, I had to go all the way to the West Coast, like nobody from my senior class went out there. So I went out there, you know, first day on campus, didn't know anybody. I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm, I knew a little bit about kind of the West Coast vibe. I'm a big hip hop fan, but it was mm -hmm. like, you know, you're seeing stuff straight out of rap videos. And it was just like, oh, like y'all really do dress like that and talk like that. So <laughs> it was a little bit of a culture shock, but man, it, it was a great experience. And I really got to understand the power of mentorship, of coaching, of having sponsors, of having, um, you know, solid advisors, of building a team and, and work experience. And, you know, throughout those four years, I worked at the Bellagio at, at the front desk. I started out working in the kitchen on campus. I um, I was an opening intern for the win. I, I opened the third tower at the Signature, which is a 1,500-room hotel condominium attached to the 5,005-room MGM Grand. I worked at Rio VIP Services, the W in Atlanta. So by the time I graduated, my I mean, my resume was, was banging. My GPA was super whack. But, <laughs> but again, I figured out the game very early, which was that it's such a practicum based industry that it was just like, you know, unless I was trying to go directly to grad school, it, the grade piece kind of didn't matter. It was like, did you finish? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And I figured that out early and it was just like, I'm not going to class like I could, I'm going to go pick up the shift. And this was over 10, 10 years ago, making 15, 16 dollars an hour. Right. You know, what's, what's interesting about that is like, you know, seeing where you are today, but you actually, you know, paid your dues and put your work in. Right. You talk about all these different things within the same industry. Um, also, what's interesting is um, a lot of times when you speak with people, they don't really know what it is they want to go to until they get to college. And it sounds like you kind of already had the idea yeah. in choosing your college and, you know, getting that experience already what you wanted to go. The industry, rather, you want to go into. That, that's a fact. And, you know, my, my dad has said that before. And, and he said, man, you're you're blessed with a, with vision. And he was just like and that's why when you he was like when you'll hear people say like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I, and he was like, it's going to blow your mind. You can't you can't comprehend it like you knew what you want to do. My dad will tell you he knew he wanted to be a principal, you know, at the age of 10 years old. Right. Mm. And he ultimately became a principal. Like it's people from my at my high school reunion. They're like, bro, like you were really talking about hotel management, like seventh, eighth grade, and you actually did it. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's rare. Like, you know, because people, you know, they change, I, you know, they're, they're, they change in terms of what it is they want to do, or sometimes they just don't know. 
Um, but having that vision to know what it is, that kind of gave you kind of give you a leg up because now you're getting all these experiences within the industry because you know this is where you want to put your focus at. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're talking about being, you know, early 20s, completed college, um, you know, from a top tier hospitality school, you know, having tremendous amount of work experience. And and the great thing, one of the greatest moments in college was I'll never forget. Uh, you may have some of those professors. They just ramble a lot. It may not be necessarily on the topic, but it's a lot of good game about life. And um, I had a hospitality law professor like that. I'll never forget. We're sitting in class one day and this one, my life just got ruined. And he was like, man, my buddy's in town. Um, selling, and he works for, you know, uh, a hotel brokerage firm and, and they, and he's selling uh, Aladdin and is, and the Aladdin is listed for, and it's, and Aladdin ultimately became planet Hollywood. And he was like, the Aladdin's listed for a hundred million. So I'm thinking if you get 6% on selling a house, what is, the, what is your commission check like on, on selling a hundred million dollar property? And I was like, time out. That's a job. <laughs> like it's people that really are getting bags out here. Like, like that's that's really what stuck with me. And that was just like, oh, I got to figure out what this hotel brokerage thing is because it sounds like there's a lot of money involved. And um, and I just locked in on that on that one little just quick aside that somebody said, and I just researched it relentlessly for about the next probably eight, nine years, just wow. dug into the industry. Um, you know, cyber stalked people, you know, looking at, okay, what was your, what was kind of your trajectory, your career trajectory to get there? Let me reverse engineer that. Okay. You did this, 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 and then you became a hotel broker. You did this, 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 and became a hotel broker. Okay. You came out of investment banking. That ain't me. Like, okay, who, who did this in a route that's similar to the way that I, that I have a skill set that I could see that I could pivot into? Like, how do, how do I make sure that I'm, and I always tell tell people this is it's something I'm I'm firm believer in, which is strategic skill acquisition, strategic skill acquisition, knowing what you need to do to get to the next level. So picking those skills, those skills up along the way. So that way, preparation will always meet opportunity. And, mm. and that's what I and that's what it was for me. I was in hotel ups and it was just like hustling through that. And then, you know, ultimately the, the recession hit the GFC great financial crisis. And I mean, just the hotel industry got obliterated. And, um, you know, that and that caused me to relocate and really, you know, reposition and do some other stuff. But um, it, it all worked out good for me because I always stayed hustling. I was always out there um, networking, meeting people, re building relationships. Yeah, I'm actually I'm, I'm, I'm writing that down. I thought that was interesting what you just said about strategic skill acquisition. Right. Because in my journeys, I've met a lot of folks who um who are entrepreneurs or either or or even entrepreneurs but one of the things that they've done along their journey is take jobs not necessarily for the salary but for that strategic skill acquisition to yeah. figure out okay I need to get into the inside to see how this works so e either I can do it on my own or you know expand and do it for a bigger company so I think that's interesting strategic skill acquisition I like that phrase right um that's something that uh we should talk more about as a community because uh, I've seen other people do that, right? Like literally take jobs for less money, but not for the money, for the skills. Yeah. But they can then apply somewhere else and they'll get the money on the back end. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. That's interesting. So when you started doing this, um, you went into this foray of, of, of learning about like, you know, um, hotel brokerages and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, what was the biggest shock to you? Something that you had no idea about and then you, and you read it or, or learned it and you like, Oh man, like I could actually do this, you know. The it wasn't really any big big shock. The biggest thing was the amount of information that's out there 
that's on the other side of the hotel business, right? So I went to school to learn hotel operations. And at a certain point in time, like you couldn't tell me, and it's funny, my concentration was actually in vacation ownership. I I was going to be regional vice president for uh, for somebody's uh, timeshare company. And that was what I wanted to do was was kind of manage timeshare resorts, right? Um, But once I really start to understand the back end of the industry and understand, okay, how are these deals put together? And it's so many different people and entities involved because you have the brand. If you've ever walked into a hotel, let's just take, for example, a courtyard by by Marriott. Mm -hmm. Um, You walk into that, you think that, okay, this is all owned and operated by Marriott. When in fact, there's the hotel brand, which is uh, which is the, the franchisor is Marriott. And then with under that, there's the flag by courtyard. And then, then you have the actual owners who put up the money to make that thing happen. And then you have the actual operator who is the third party management company that is running the day-to-day operations on behalf of the investors. And then you have somebody called an asset manager who's managing the management company to make mm-hmm. sure that they're that they're staying on the honest and, and up and up and they're not screwing over the, the ownership group. And the reason for that is a lot of people that own hotels have never worked in hotels. They don't necessarily know the hotel business, right? Gotcha. They, they know other businesses, but there's a lot of nuance to our industry that if you don't know what you're doing, you can lose your shirt real quick. And those asset managers, are they kind of come in and kind of help, you know, keep an eye on everything. And, and they are really the greatest advocate for the owner. So for me, understanding all of that, and that's not talked about for a very long time in hotel school, right? Like it's basically like hotel school has a lot to do with kind of like the day-to-day operations. You know, you understand what those other roles are, but there's not a lot of stuff that really goes uh, a tremendous amount in depth to it. So for me, it was really diving into that and educating myself on, okay, who are these asset management groups? Who are these management companies? Who are these, um, um, uh, who are the ownership groups who actually owns the stuff? Some of this stuff is owned by real estate investment trusts that are publicly traded. Uh, what, are they, what are they owning? What do they look like? Why are some people buying certain types of asset classes and certain types of hotels in certain markets? That was probably the most mind blowing piece was really moving outside of the, I just want to be a GM and then ultimately a RVP, a regional vice president to, okay, what does it look like to really kind of revisit becoming a hotel owner, becoming a strategic advisor, uh, becoming somebody who's super senior level and kind of oversees all this stuff that I have a very granular understanding of because I've been a front desk agent. I've been a housekeeping manager. I, I've done I've been in the trenches. Right. But, you know, how do I elevate that to the next level? And again, strategic skill acquisition, take that and say, you know, what, I don't have the Ivy League MBA, but I got these skill set and I've been hands on. I know these things and I know it from a different angle and a different lens. And I'm a crucial part of your team, just like the person who has the Ivy League B school uh, certification. Man, I just I just got me a quick education right there. Um, right. Because I, I know I know that, like, you know, there's certain brands that are just like, you know, um, and sometimes the brands actually will just license their name to certain projects. So I knew that. But the way you just broke it down in terms of like the asset managers and then the owners and then the operator, like, man, that's a, that's a that's a, a huge education. I'm going to be looking at hotels different when I walk through a hotel now. A um, couple questions for you about, you know, now that you made this transition into becoming a hotel broker. So what does that look like in terms of size? Because when you hear the term hotel, we have, you know, um, you know, the W or the Marriott, these big things in mind, but hotels come in all shapes and sizes. Right. So what is what is that uh, encompass when we talk about being a hotel broker? What are the different sizes of uh, these kind of projects? So uh, so I'll, I'll break it down into there's there's three uh, classifications of hotels and then there's a bunch of uh, basically hybrids and, and kind of offshoots 
that that you can go a, a little bit deeper into and and that could be a, a whole nother video for two days long but mm -hmm. three basic are there's limited service meaning that there's no food and beverage so outside of like a free breakfast so uh, uh, although people say it's not limited service they call it select it really is limited service uh hampton inn motel six uh fairfield inn and suites it, you're getting the concept right you go in you get a decent clean room you're gonna get a free breakfast in the morning maybe there's that there's a fitness center and the internet that type of stuff that's about it right then you have something called select service select service is uh it was really invented by kind of like marriott with, with the courtyard brand where they're saying hey we're a step above that hampton inn because we have a restaurant uh where you can get breakfast and dinner not not a huge menu but a little something something if you're coming in off the road and you don't want to go out uh you or you don't want to do your your uber eats whatever you could come down here you got to pay for this breakfast you got to pay for this dinner it's not included um but but we do have that amenity available that's called select service so think about things like a, a courtyard a loft um, mm -hmm. um uh hilton garden in ac those are all in select service categories okay. then you have something called full service full service is really classified by you you can get uh food and beverage all three meals uh at one point in time a, a big piece of that classification was you used to have uh in room you, you needed to have in-room dining we've kind of walked away from that as an industry just because in-room dining hemorrhages money um it, it, the other piece is meeting space so so think about and um so like you're in the philadelphia area so think about like a w think about okay. uh, a sheridan those are full service hotels gotcha. you're gonna go in there and you kind of don't need to leave you can have your meeting you can have your breakfast your lunch your dinner you can go for a jog they got the little gift shop like they got they got everything kind of tied up there those are really the the three classifications where do i i focus i transact in all three arenas okay uh, across country you know uh, any any dollar size any dollar amount the biggest thing is that it has to make sense um in order for you know my valuation on it the owner's valuation uh you know perceived value of it the market's perceived value of it and the appraisal all of those things are, are four different things <laughs> are four different numbers hopefully they all come in pretty close um and, but but to answer your question yeah so i i kind of work in in all of those asset classes but just given construction type and and build times and that type of stuff and if you look at kind of just uh distribution of hotels throughout the united states there's more limited and select services because they're easier to build they're quicker to build and they're extremely profitable so i end up selling more limited and select service all right so that's i have a couple questions based on that right first off you said in-room dining like hemorrhages money right um is that like across the board that's just a thing that in, in industry in general just hemorrhages money yeah yeah and so uh food and beverage for years in general was considered to be a lost leader very few hotels are doing food and beverage uh well a lot of times it's like break even or it's like a super small profit um but there there's a way to do it there is a way to do it. it's just the problem is is that we've been saying for decades that it's a lost leader so if you're think if you go into something being terror thinking it's going to be terrible it's going to be terrible um mm -hmm. i worked at a 2000 room resort and I, I was there for about 18 months we made money in in-room dining we broke a profit one month and that was because we had a bunch of um hospitality suites where people you know we, we went in there and set up you know coffee stations in the big suites and don donuts and that type of stuff and we actually made money but i mean he's talking about you got to have somebody sitting around there taking the order you got to have a cook to prep it now hopefully you, you know you you can you know have some overlap there with the restaurant but a lot of times it's not extremely uh it's not extremely profitable which is why a lot of hotels just kind of got away from it um and if you even go into like a lot of these full service hotels 
Some of them are even closing their full service restaurants and they're opening up a market. You can go and get your sandwiches and your wraps and we got a bunch of frozen dinners. Um, you know, they got like a little deli type situation where you can go and get some sandwiches and some soups. Uh, but they're not really doing that. They're, they're trying to get away from the full service restaurant. The other reason is technology has changed so different. So, you know, 20 years ago, DoorDash, Uber Eats, that was not a thing. Right. Yeah. You, if you came to that hotel, you were in that hotel unless you were going out. So hotels were really able. They had a captured audience. Right. Kind of like the airport. It's a captured audience. Like you if you hungry, you got to pay six dollars for that for that burger. It just is what it is. Um, now, hotels, they realize, OK, it's, it's all these things going on that have changed up in the economics of it. Why compete with that? So unless you are doing your restaurant very, very well and you invest in it and there's some some tips and tricks that you can do there from a consulting standpoint, you know, market it as a freestanding restaurant, all that type of stuff. You get the right type of chef in there. But a lot of times, uh, you know, and you got some hotel owners, they, they are scared to death of food and beverage. And they'll be like, find me a chef that wants a restaurant and we'll sign a lease. I don't want any parts of this. I just want to collect a rent check. Got you. All right. So, man, I'm, I'm getting the whole education right here, man. Something else you said um, when you talked about the three classes and you talked about those uh, those lower two, you said those are cat that those make a lot of cash. So yeah. in comparison to, say, um, you know, the top tier full service, would those be considered a better investment? Because I guess it's, it's a lower investment to build. But then there's also you make a lot of money on that hand. So would that from an investment standpoint, would that be something that's considered, a, you know, a better investment or is it more risk all right so from an investment standpoint I, i'll tell you limited and select service are just i mean they kill um you know i mean you can do very well in full service too but all those opportunities for you to make money are also opportunities for you to lose money nobody's in that mean space you still got to heat and cool it right you know you still yeah. got to have somebody kind of staffed um you know you got to check that stuff out you know you just can't you know shut it off and, and act like it's not there um, that restaurant, if nobody's in that restaurant, you still got to staff a hostess. You still got to staff a, uh, a, you know, your kitchen, all these people, cause you may get guests. Uh, so that's why people like those Hampton Inns, that Holiday Inn Express, that type of stuff, because it's a really easy operation, right? When you get into the breakfast, um, that complimentary breakfast is like less than $4 per, less than four or $5 per occupied room. It doesn't really cost the ownership a ton of money. Now, if it ends up costing more than that, there's some other factors. Uh, a lot of times the employees are eating breakfast, that type of stuff, or, or you're not really, you know, you know, following the schedule and, and have an idea of your capture rate for breakfast uh, for the market. Or you're in a high like resort area like Orlando, where it's a bunch of families and everybody's, you know, quad occupancy and 75 percent of the guests are going to eat breakfast. Yeah. Right? Those kind of off things. But uh, for, so my personal investment thesis is I like limited service. I like economy. Um, and I tell and I tell first time hotel investors, th these are kind of the boxes that you need to check. You want to look for something that qualifies for SBA. Right. So usually that five million uh, and, and under price range. Right. So mm -hmm. with SBA, you only have to put down 20 to 25 percent. Um, 20 is kind of rare to come by in certain markets in very rare situations. You can do USDA and that's 10 percent down. That's a whole nother conversation. But. Let's just stick with the SBA. You're talking about 20% down. So you're talking about a five, let's, let's call it a $4 million deal. You got to do a million dollar renovation. You're talking about $5 million, 20% down on that is a million dollar equity raise. What does a million dollar equity raise look like? 
That's 10 people with 100,000. That's 20 people with 50,000. That's exactly, I can overcomplicate it, but that's exactly how hotel deals are done. Um, mm. And it's people, it's people putting together their money, you know, and that's, if, if, you're, if your circle is, it got it like that and you all are blessed, you might have four people with, with 250,000. You might have five people with 200,000, but that's exactly how these hotels deals are done. Now, people always say, well, how do you run the thing, right? There's a third part. There are third party companies that run your, your property anywhere from three to four percent of gross revenue. So you install them. You obviously want to make sure that you have a good contract where you can terminate for performance reasons, so forth and so on. But you, you, you insert the third party manager. Now you're in the investor seat, right? I strongly recommend if you do not know the hotel business to hire an asset manager, somebody to manage the management company. I see first time, second time, third time hotel owners that do not know the business and they try to be their own asset manager and these management companies can take advantage of you. Um, and they, because they know that you don't know the business. So they'll just tell you any old thing. And, um, and, and again, you know, management companies, there's some good, there's some bad, you know, and it's, you know, manage, man, leaders within them. Um, but if you don't know the business, you, you, you just don't know. And the great thing about hotel investments is that it's so data rich. We have data available on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. So if somebody comes up to you and is like, oh, yeah, you know, we missed budget or we had a bad quarter, like you knew that a few weeks ago. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's not multifamily where it's, you know, somebody moved, you got a four unit, somebody moved out, you had 75% occupancy and it took two months to lease up. Right. It's, it's not that you're trying to get somebody in every night. It's a very dynamic industry. And that's the other thing, too. People coming from multifamily or other real estate classes, they're like, I know real estate, but you don't know the hotel business. You can still lose your shirt because hotels are so dynamic versus some of these other ones that are very static. Right. So, yeah. you know, you have to understand revenue management like you had to have your rates set correctly. If you're in a if you're in a resort market or you're in a leisure market where people are going to be popping out that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's when you really make your money. Your rate has to be set strategically. Maybe you want to soften that rate a little bit on the weekdays. So, um, so just all, all of those things that that come into play. Man, I'm getting a full, full like a uh, you know little little education right now because I wrote down a couple questions I have as I'm listening to you speak. Um, because first off, I will say this: that at the way you just broke that down, it's like that's actually kind of attainable, right? If yeah. you get pull pull resources with a couple people, because a lot of times when you look at a hotel, you're like man, you know, you got to have X amount of dollars to have that. But the way you just broke it down, the average person can get into hotel ownership, right? With the right circle. Exactly. And, and that's the thing, like a lot of people, here's where they make the mistake. One is they don't want to educate themselves on the business. So when you don't educate yourselves on the business, like you kind of just are, you'll just take a lot longer in the process than you need to. That's number one. Number two, they go into it thinking like a consumer versus an owner. So they're like, I like to stay in in the double trees and in, in the embassy. So I want to own one. It's just like that ain't how you do it, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, let me show you how you're gonna lose money by doing that. Um, and, you know, when I show these folks uh, a Motel Six, a Quality Inn, an Econo Lodge, a Days Inn, a lot of these people turn their nose up. It's like you don't have to stay there. But look at wealth distribution in North America. There are more people <laughs> that are not fortunate than there are. So, yeah. If you look at the average household salary, it's sub 60,000, sub 70,000. Mm -hmm. Like, so why not cater to the masses, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can still go and stay at the resorts and, and live your best life, but there's a, a solid amount of population that wants to stay there. And if you look at how these how the, how the economy class performed in recessions and, um, and, 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 and throughout the public health crisis, 
they did pretty decent. Everybody struggled, but they did pretty decent. They were able to like kind of hobble along versus, you know, who got hurt the most during the public health crisis, the luxury hotels. Yeah. They had to give the rooms away to like, you know, um, uh, first responders and stuff like that. Like not a lot of people are pulling up to the four seasons. It just, it just didn't make sense. Now, Wood Spring Suites, which is an economy extended state, they ended 2020 at 72% occupancy. Just to give, just to let you know what that means brand wide, the average was 72%. The industry average overall for 2020, worst year ever for hotel occupancy, 46%. So, like, it, the, the economy sector wins every time. Interesting. All right. So that 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 brings me to a couple questions. Right. When you talked about the fees that um, the operator makes, how does an asset manager get paid in this business? Yeah, great question. So the asset manager also gets paid off of the top, right? So they also get paid uh, a percentage of revenue, maybe uh, anywhere from a point, point and a half, two points, depending on the relationship and how many assets you have with them, um, right? So, so they get paid there. Then you have the franchisor that also gets paid off the top. Those fees can be anywhere from, you know, eight and a half to like 13 uh, percent of, of, you know, top line revenue. So all of those fees add up. Right. But, you know, the great thing about it is that and this is what a lot of people sleep on and why, like you said, it's extremely attainable once you figure out how to put together the capital. And once you get get a little bit of understanding of, of the business, hotel ownership is extremely important for folks in other asset classes. Like if you're out here flipping houses, if you're redeveloping houses, whatever you're doing, it's a really good diversification place. Number one. Number two. It has you participate in job creation. So, yes, you know, there's that a lot was, of things that was on my list. That was on my list. That there's a lot of things that, you know, our community is participating in that generates wealth and is great for our personal economies. And that's dope. But, you know, are you creating jobs? One in 20. Now, this is pre pandemic. One in 25 jobs in North America was supported by the hotel industry. That's a big that's a big thing. So. Yeah, when you start talking about and these are not low paying jobs, like that's the other thing, too. They're not all low paying jobs. So when you're an owner and you're able to push back to the management company and say, like, hey, you know what? I want to have a black woman as a general manager. Right. I want to have, you know, a Latinx uh, man as as a general manager. Like, find me like these are the things that I value. Right. Uh, you know, so, for instance, I was working with a, a first time group of, of, of black owners. They were developing a property, found a management company I put them in touch with and they had that conversation and was like, hey, you know what? You guys are headquartered here. That's not terribly far from this HBCU that has a hospitality and tourism program. Like you have no black people on your executive board. Like we're considering, you know, working with you. But hey, let, let's have a, a, a deeper conversation on how do you get more inclusive in your hiring practices? You can have that conversation as the owner and now have generational change and not just generational wealth. Man, all right. So now you got my mind is uh going right now, right? <laughs> job creation is 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 very, very important. Um, as we talk about building communities. Um, but I want to go back for one second. Um yeah. I'm I'm writing these notes down as you're talking because like I said, I'm getting a full education right here. So for the franchise fee that comes off the top as well, what do those franchises provide uh in terms of you know their value to to this whole deal, right? So if I'm paying an asset manager, I'm paying an operations, but also to pay the franchise fee, what are they providing for that? Is it just a name or what else do they provide? Great question. So they provide um, they provide the name and that name is incredibly valuable. You talk mm -hmm. to a lot of first time owners. They all say the same thing. I want to have a boutique hotel. I want to have an independent. 
And the first thing I ask them, I tell you, and I say that lender's going to ask you this too. Where do your guests come from? Don't worry. I'll wait. <laughs> right. They don't really have an answer. Like, oh, you know, like these brands bring in guests. There's something called brand contribution. Brand contribution means how many guests come through their front door that have booked through the brand. Right. That's an important thing because that range is, depending on the brand, anywhere from 30 percent to like 65, 70 percent. So you start talking about so lenders going to ask you, hey, you're independent. That's cool. I get it. You don't want to pay franchise fees. But where are these? 70 percent of the, your guests coming from where's the 30 percent coming from how do you make that up that's exactly what they bring the other thing that they bring is when you're you're joining their family right so they have pre-negotiated things right they say hey well with these vendors because we're so big we come in with a different type of purchasing power not to mention that there's something called otas online travel agencies a lot of people are not brand loyal Right. Meaning that they don't some people are not like they just they only want to stay at these at these brands like business travelers are. But um, a lot of people that are traveling the leisure sector, they're, you know, they, they just looking for a deal. They're going to, to Expedia. They're going to Travelocity and all that other type of stuff. Those things, those sites have fees that they are hitting the hotel with a commission. Now, if you're an independent, they could they could they could really run your pockets. And they can hit you for whatever fee that they want to because you're an independent, gotcha. right? You don't have you don't have that purchasing power. Now, if you're part of a large brand and that large brand basically stepped to them and said, hey, all of our franchisees, you know, you're only going to take 9%, 11%, 12% uh, on a dollar. If you're an independent, it can get much higher. So uh, to answer your question, that's the type of stuff. You, there's additional services that they can sell you like revenue management support. But that's sales and marketing. I mean, when you're watching TV and you see a commercial for um, for a certain hotel brand, when you're flipping through a magazine, and you're seeing that when you're when you're on the airplane and you're seeing a commercial for a hotel brand like that's what you're paying for. Those Super Bowl ads, all of that stuff like you're, you're paying for that. And it does bring value because we all know that you get programmed. People get programmed by this stuff, right? Well, no, listen, I, got, I listen. I got my um my my Hilton honors and my bond my bond void like things. So yeah, I, I make listen. My points is crazy. I make sure I uh, you know, personally when I travel off, even if it's you know one of the higher brands, I still make sure that you know they accept my little um. So I get it. I get I get the whole yeah. idea of that. I'm just wondering, like, so you're saying it's worth it, the, even if it's just a name that is worth it for all the value that that name brings. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the value that it brings is is tremendous. I mean, because you're able to now, again, unless you're in a very super dope location, you're in the downtown D.C., you're in the South Beach, um, you know, downtown Chicago, someplace like that where you kind of don't necessarily need a brand. Um, and in that situation, the brand may be less helpful. Um, okay. And you may say, hey, I'll do independent. But there's also something out there called a soft brand, which is like where you tie in, you pay the franchise fees, you do a little bit of stuff, this kind of brand standard. But ultimately, like you're your own kind of individual thing. And you've kind of come across some of those. So like in Philadelphia, I think it's called the the notary, the old yeah. um, the old courtyard there. Right. So mm -hmm. like you might think like, oh, this is an independent. Like it's still Marriott affiliate. It's part of something called autograph collection. So they get to enjoy all the benefits. But here's because here's the other issue. A little bit might begin too deep here. Uh, courtyard, since it's an international brand, somebody stayed in a courtyard in Indianapolis and paid one ninety nine. Somebody stayed in a courtyard in Manhattan and it's five forty nine. 
somebody stay in the courtyard and it's Philadelphia and it might be, you know, 219. So there's sometimes there becomes a price ceiling with certain brands where somebody might look at that and be like, I'm not paying five something for a courtyard. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I got it. I know what the product is. It's not unique. I stayed in one of the autograph uh, collections um, in Prague. When I went to Prague, I stayed in the autograph Mm -hmm. collection. And that's interesting because I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that they they were a sub brand of one of the bigger um, conglomerates. Absolutely. Oh, man. So listen, a couple more. I I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do have a couple more questions because this is so interesting to me. Um, When you talk about the franchise fee, the asset manager, the operations manager, right? Um, with the job creation. So it's two, it's a two-part question. The first thing is, what kind of ROI can someone who's looking to get into this business expect with having to pay all those fees? Absolutely. So uh, it varies de- depending on, on from deal to deal. But I, I can tell you a lot of people you're looking at, uh, most people are kind of underwriting to, for, to a low, I'll probably say low to mid-20s IRR. Um, okay. They want to see usually, you know, some people are okay with low teens. Most, a lot of people are looking at kind of mid teens, cash on cash. Uh, and a lot of times people are looking at an equity multiple uh, of two. Now, again, it varies deal to deal over the lifetime of the deal. There's some stuff that, you know, I've seen happen that drastically inflates the value because you can do a repositioning. Like one of the first deals that I ever invested in. Um, there's other opportunities out there where you may say, um, you know what, we're going to deflag it and make it more profitable. That's another thing, too. Like a lot of these higher end brands, they're dope. I love to stay in them, but they're expensive to operate. They are super expensive to operate because those renovations are not cheap. So you may say, like, look, I'll make less money on the top line, but I might even be able to get better flow through on the bottom line. Right. There's you got to understand all those all those different triggers. So so the very long winded response to it varies deal to deal. OK, another thing that just came to my mind is I'm you know, my brain is working as you're talking is this seems like it would be like a beneficial tax play. Right. From a tax planning standpoint, Man. Like this, this, you know, um, and you don't have to go into specifics, but am I yeah. on the right path thinking that? One hundred percent. I'll I'll open that up with, you know, I am not a tax professional, but <laughs> the, the and you should always seek advice from a tax professional. But the depreciation clips that people enjoy. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. You know, I was talking to this one guy and um and he told me, you know, he, he didn't even realize this, but he bought something, repositioned it. And he was like, dude, year one of my renovation, I can write off up to three million dollars of the rental. Right. So there's folks that have that as a tax strategy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of like Powerball winners, uh, lottery winners. They go out here and buy hotels. Right. Because it's part of their they like the depreciation clips. People who are getting money from from other sectors like you you need that. Right. So think about this. If you're somebody that's getting a lot of money and and residential flips or or redevelopment and you got you got the rental. So you got a nice little mix going on there. Um, you know, or, or you're doing some really super fly stuff with options trading or crypto, mm-hmm. like, a, and you, and you maybe, maybe you came into a lot of bread real quick and it's just like, okay, like how do I do this in a smart strategy with a smart strategy? And then you go ahead and, and you become a partner in a hotel. So you're getting the depreciation clips and you're getting some travel benefits, right? So you got yeah. certain hotel brands, you get that ownership card, um, for like IHG, for example, you get 21 free nights a year. Oh, Right. Ooh, so, I, mean, I, I didn't even know about that. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you start talking about enjoying, um, uh, you know, deeply discounted races like Hilton, for example, with their owner's program, you can usually get like up to 20% off, off of the rack rate if the other discounts are available. And then you get like, otherwise you get like the employee rate, which could be like a $35 rate at a Hampton or a home to a $55 rate at a, or $45 rate at an embassy suites. And I mean, if it's oh, available, man. I mean, I, I've taken advantage of some of that stuff in, in New York city and Miami, like it's, it's 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 a really it's a really dope feature. Listen, man, I know I know I know you didn't come on here for this, man. But you you selling me right now, bro. <laughs> 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 but I do have a couple. I have a couple more. I promise you, I have a couple more questions. No, um, all good. In terms of those rates, right? So you 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 have the asset manager, you have the operations. But you know anyone who knows the hotel from a consumer standpoint, we see how the rates can fluctuate and change, like yeah. literally within the same day. Yes. Who's responsible for that in this like you know um, ecosystem? Is it the asset manager? Is the operations manager? Who's who's watching that and making Great sure? Question. We're with that? Great question. So that is what you call revenue management. So the um, uh, airlines have mastered it, right? Like with the airlines, you just accept you may you may be have paid fifty nine dollars. The person next to you may have paid thirty nine uh, three hundred ninety nine dollars. You know, you looked at it that morning, it was one ninety nine. You looked at it that night, it was two nineteen. It just is what it is. Nobody complains. The guests have been perfectly groomed to it. It's the same thing in the hotel. So, for instance, I, I managed um, an 880 room hotel in DC, right? So, what we would do is try to fill up, you know, four to 600 rooms with group business, right? You get a group in here at 399, you get another group in here with at, at, at you know, 199, another one at 219, 259. And then you look like, man, we sold out 600 of the 800 rooms. And then you do the math and you're like, well, my cost per occupied room kind of is what it is. I already got the front desk agents there. I already got the room attendants. At that point, it cost me pennies to fill to fill up the hotel. We used to turn on a $99 rate because we were thirsty like that. Mm. And then sell out the hotel, the last 150, 200 rooms for a $99 rate. That is called revenue management. And a lot of people don't understand it. It's, it's, it's gotten more familiar uh, and, and a lot different because the hotel business back in the day, we used to do what's called a heads and bed strategy. Like just just sell out, just sell out by any means necessary. You got somebody in there, twenty nine dollars, fifty nine dollars. It don't matter. Just get them in there, get them in there, get them in there. Because the most perishable thing, the first thing that you learn in hotel school, the most perishable thing in a hotel is the room night. I'll say that again. The most perishable thing in a hotel is a room night, meaning that today is June first. If you don't sell room two hundred two June first tonight, you cannot resell it tomorrow. Gotcha. Right? It's not like gotcha. the restaurant. You don't sell that that chicken parmesan today. Tomorrow you might be able to sell it, right? So you know what I'm saying. So so it's a highly perishable item that you have to figure out what's the right price to let it go into with your with your cost per occupier room. So to answer your question, that the hotel operations team has to have a sound grasp on that. Your third party operator, and a lot of times they do charge you extra for that revenue management support uh, to make sure that you you're getting the most out of it. Because you want to be in tune. If you're at an airport property, you got to know there's 18 flight cancellations. And it's just like, you know what? We could jack this rate up another $10, $12. So that, that means that, you know, when it comes to like your operations manager, like there's probably levels to that too. Like some are probably, you know, way better than others, right? 100%. And, and a lot of times, most folks, if you're first, second, third time hotel owner, you're going to be using a management company. And the management company has all that support. They have the, they have the general managers. They have... Uh, the revenue managers, they have the HR support. All of this stuff is going to be crucial in your ownership journey because, again, if you don't know the business, these are the places where you can lose out. 
a lot of these individual hotels with these, these you got some super unsophisticated cats where it's like yeah it's 99 throughout the week and it's 129 on the weekend i'll never forget i was i was underwriting the hotel that was legitimately his, his revenue management strategy like <laughs> As rudimentary as it was, he thought he was getting it in. And I mean, his but his basis was so low, he was able to do well. But imagine if he was able to capture more guests and be like, OK, well, it's going to be 89 right here for these rooms da, 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 da. you know, you can that it's all that it's a science to it. And you got to pay for people who, who are who are the data scientists. Wow. Right to my next question. Right. Um, which is about data. Right. So so. Um, from my standpoint, I deal with data every day from um, from a residential and commercial standpoint. But um, so this is a, a multi-part question yeah. <clears throat> um, in terms of I was going to ask how data has changed the, the, the industry, because um, you talked about this, the pure amount of data and information you guys have from a daily to a weekly to a monthly. How has that changed your business um, with technology? Right. So. The reason it's a two-part question is because, well, I'm, let me ask you, let, let you answer that part first in terms of data, and then I'll ask my other technology question. Yeah, so the data is, um, we're in a data war right now. Like, that's the thing. There's so much business intelligence out there. Oh, my goodness. There's so many different things that you can do to get the data. Like, if you are failing at, at a hotel, as a hotel operator, it's either you're not paying attention to the data or you're suffering from analysis paralysis. You just got a data overload. You don't know what to do. Do you, have like older, do you have like older owners or operators that like um, haven't embraced data science? Because, I, you know, I find that sometimes it's difficult to talk to people on a, um, you know, on a mass scale with residential. Yeah. Who, because they've been in the business so long, yeah. they don't want to hear about the data. Like, do you find that in the hotel industry as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see that more so with like owner operators. Uh, you don't really see it with the management companies with the third party out, which is another reason why people hire the third party because they're out there buying the data. They're buying all of the data and it's just like, oh, new data. Yeah, I'll take that new data. I'll take that. Like there's so much information out there. Uh, and there's the basic piece is something called a star report. Right. STR Smith Travel Report, uh, Smith Travel Research. And what they do is they collect all the data in your market. So, you know, on average and you get to select your comp set. Right. So you pick four or five hotels and you say, I want to measure myself against these hotels. It's blind. So you don't know who what their each performance is, but you're able to say like, out of these five hotels, I'm the rate leader. I'm second in occupancy and, you know, I'm third in revenue per available room, which is ref bar. That's one key thing. Like old heads, like that's all they pay attention to is a star report. Then you got other people who are looking at, you got to pay attention to what's going on in the short-term rental market too, depending on where you're at. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the thing. Then you got to pay attention to, here's the big thing that a lot of people are ignoring, which is what's going on in the construction world. So if they're building more hotels, what type of hotels are they building? Again, that is why I like economy hotels. Nobody out there, I'm saying that. It's extremely rare that somebody's building from ground up an economy hotel. So if I own a Days In and somebody opens up a W and somebody opens up a Fairfield, that probably actually helps me because we're not. it's not the same guest. That means that it's more people that are going to be paying higher rates in the area. I can maybe juice mine up two, three dollars, right? Like it, economy, like I don't really compete with, with that many people. Uh, on, on a new construction front, but you got to be aware of new construction. If you're a Holiday Inn, if you're an owner and somebody's building a Holiday Inn Express, you should be concerned. You know, you got to have a conversation with your team. Like, are we going to renovate? How do we stay competitive? Do we got to start budgeting for the renovation? Do we need to refi to get money together to do the, this renovation? So the data is, is incredibly important because it lets you know how to respond. And especially if you have 
these big one-time events like a Super Bowl or, you know, the Republican National Convention, Democratic National Convention, this stuff that sells out cities. Um, you got to know what's going on with the sports teams. Like all of this stuff, it matters. Interesting. Interesting. So my second part, well, the other part of this technology question um, that I have to ask is like, you've been in this for a while. So you've seen a lot of things come and go. Um, but with technology in terms of Airbnb and apps like Airbnb, how has that affected the industry? Um, <clears throat> and what do you see as the future when it comes to like, you know, um, Airbnb and technology? I saw some of the bigger hotel chains were trying to like create their own version. Um, so how has that affected it? And, and what do you think is, is the future for, you know, that part of the technology side? Great question. So there's... Um... The sharing economy is is here to stay, right? Um, funny story, I'll never forget. I was at at, at the hotel show in uh, New York, like the biggest you know show, and some student asked a question about Airbnb to the panel. None of the panelists knew what it was. The next year, it was brought up on every single panel back to back, and it was like that was a, a very interesting marker in history because it it evolved that fast and it just took off like wildfire. To answer your question, it's very much market specific, which again is why I like economy hotels. And why I like the secondary and tertiary markets. If you are in the French Quarter, New Orleans, yes, short-term rentals are a very real issue. You're on South Beach, that's a very real issue. So you take an example, so like uh, in Miami area, right? J just a fun stat. I think it was like March, February, March. Um, the average, uh, you know, daily rate for a short-term rental was like 165. For a hotel, it was like 185. So they were really close. Now, that's, again, very unique. So if you have a hotel in, in South Florida, yes, you should be concerned. If you have it in Winona, if you're if you're a hotel owner in Winona, Mississippi, it ain't really a thing. Um, downtown Chicago, it's an issue. Downtown D.C., downtown Philly, New York, we've seen some 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 erosion. Absolutely. Okay. But it, it's, it varies. This is the thing that I'm watching and I'm keeping an eye on is more so what's called the apartheid sector, um, which is like your... Um, uh, you know, some of the companies that are no longer here, like Lyric, Stay Alfred, Domeo, which is very, which is, gives you the institutionalized approach, which means that you have somebody that's built an apartment building. Um, you have somebody else comes in, usually master leases it out, but they're renting, they're furnishing these apartments and, and re-renting them out as, as hotel rooms. Now, what that gives you is that that's, you're not dealing with an individual owner operator, you're dealing with a larger entity. So you have standardization, you have a little bit of a customer touch. Right. And you have, um, you know, just some basic life safety stuff. So you feel a little bit more comfortable. I think that's going to continue to be more of a sector. Um, and I'm interested to see what other brands are participating in, in kind of that short term rental sector. So you look at like you said, like Marriott, they brought up with their home away villas. I'm also interested to see what that looks like on the evolution, because they've said that they're not going to do it. But I think that it's eventually going to happen. They're going to eventually move into the partel sector. And how do you handle that as a franchisee? Right. If you're a franchisee, mm -hmm. you and I put it together, our life savings. We built this Fairfield in downtown Philly. We have the grant, the grand open and we high five in each other. And then this condo developer, you know, two buildings over, can't sell all the condos. Marius says we're going to make this a home away with 40 units. And it's just like, hold on, time out. Like, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. I mean, you know, it's how do you compete with that as a hotel owner? Because they're selling a whole apartment. Yeah. Now you can argue with slightly different guests, but I mean, man, it's 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 you know it, it gets a little bit dangerous. But you know, again, it's all market specific, and that's why we tell people like focus on these secondary and tertiary markets. If you're in the suburbs, it's a dramatically less of an impact. Like you know, because that that customer, that consumer of the short term market, mark, mark short term rental market is a lot different 
um, and a lot of markets than than the hotel owners. Right. So for me, like I'll never stay in one like that's just not me. I, I need standardization. I like the customer service approach. I actually stayed in one le- last year and I posted on, on my Instagram and I checked out in three hours. I just couldn't handle it. Um, it was just you no, know, you're funny, but I know a lot of people like that. Like, family and friends tell me, like, I'm not buying, like, you know, um, like aunts and things, like, I'm not getting an Airbnb, like, I'm not doing that. I, I need they, yeah. a certain level of comfort they feel, and that goes, I guess, that goes back to what you were saying earlier. Like, those brand names have a value where people, like, even, even from a safety standpoint, they feel safer with some of those brand names, and um, you know, so I get it, I yeah, totally get yeah. That. I mean, something goes wrong, you know who to complain to. Like Marriott has a customer service, you know, department. Yeah. yeah. Like Airbnb, these other companies. And again, I, I, I'm, I'm ignorant to the fact, but you know, you're dealing with. And I, I had to call somebody on basically what I assume was like their trap phone and wait for them to get <laughs> off the truck and have a break to call me back for me to tell them these are the issues. You got to, you know, reset the AC and the heat to a certain thing. You got to take all the stuff in a hotel. I just leave. I walk out. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, it, it's again, it's a different type of consumer and and, it, and they offer different things. And the Partel sector is offering that institutionalized standardization that is going to become more and more difficult for your Airbnbs and your VRBOs to compete with. Because there's there are a group of people that's like, I like more space. I want more space. I want the full kitchen. I don't want to have to bring my own toilet paper. Like you can miss me with that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I, I think that it, it's always going to continue to depend on the market. Interesting, man. So I, I promise you, I have two more questions in reference yeah. to hotels. For the first question in reference to a hotel is from a valuation standpoint, is it when you when you guys value a hotel, is it purely like um income capitalization? Like is it is it really not necessarily about the bricks and sticks, but about the income? Great question. So yeah, the interesting thing about hotels and valuations is that it's an operating business on real estate. So again, operating business on real estate. So really the valuation is in that business. So you know. When, when folks get so the metrics that a lot of people use from other like oh price per square foot like if someone somebody calls me talking about price per square foot i know you don't know anything about hotels mm-hmm. and it's gonna probably be a very difficult conversation um there's four main things that we use to value hotels one is going to be replacement costs mm-hmm. uh, and that's a good gut check are you paying more than this thing costs to get built in today's dollars right maybe you can make that argument if you're in new york or dc right so i, I recently sold an office building that had been rezoned to go to hotel use uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. You had to value that on replacement costs because somebody had just built something three miles away for three hundred thousand a key. OK, right. So it's like if you can get all into this office building, reposition it for two hundred thousand a key, that's a solid valuation metric. You brought up the, the capitalization rate, which is a function of the NOI over the sales price and that net operating income. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the room revenue multiple. Okay. So, you know, the, the base of the multiple is anywhere from three to four and it flexes up or down depending on the market, asset class, that type of stuff. Some places you can justify a four and a half, five multiple um, of revenue, meaning if it's doing a million dollars in revenue, you know, somebody may say I want a five multiple. That's a five million dollar valuation. Um, and then the other thing is comps, you know, just looking at comp sales. What is what is sold this comparable product uh, in a similar region on a price per key basis? Uh, and then you also with comps, it's also a little bit difficult because you have to look at and do a lot of research on that specific hotel. Was it renovated? Because if somebody bought something and they had to renovate it, then you got to tack on the, kind of the estimated renovation costs on top of that. And a lot of these hotels for the kind of the upper mid scale brands, I mean, you're talking 20,000 plus per key. Whew. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So as a hotel broker, 
do you help put these entire plays together? Like, so, so do you just sell the bricks and sticks or do you help someone like maybe trying to get into the business in terms of like, um, finding an asset manager, finding an operator, what does an actual hotel broker do? Is it like just one part of it or do you put the whole play together? Uh, it depends on how much help they need. You know, they're most of the folks that I deal with are, you know, uh, they're, they're seasoned and all they need for me to do is point them <laughs> to, to an asset, give them the data and they can do it themselves. Now, you know, kind of the other piece is, you know, what can I do? I involve myself in everything and anything as, as long as they need me to and it's legal, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll help you get there. And that's led me to like what the future looks like for me, which is a passion of mine. And I founded something called National Institute of Lodging Education, where I'm focused on educating. It's a nonprofit focused on educating first time black and Latinx hotel owners. Uh, where it's like, hey, look, the, this is a community, and, and I don't really beat the drum of access to capital is an issue. Access to capital is an issue. I think that every community has their top five, 10% earners. I mean, you talk about whether it be ethnicity, gender, lifestyle, whatever, everybody has a top 5% that's earning. Yeah. And there's people there out there that are capitalizing, they're not investing in hotels strictly because they don't know the business. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? You see, and it's difficult to talk to people. You don't come across a lot of hotel owners uh, if you're in those communities, right? So, you know, you know, people that may be in, in QSR and quick service restaurants, you know, people that have done multifamily. So you'll do that because you can kind of verify what you're hearing. So my biggest thing kind of going back to how I started, which is the family business, which is education. So how do I educate people on what this looks like? How do I pour into them so that they can make these transactions? And ultimately it's a business development tool too, right? I want to be able to, cause I've set like some amazing deals in front of people, but they just didn't know what they were looking at. So they couldn't act. Right. Yeah. So if you have the education and you're armed with the with the education on what are the steps, what is it becomes less daunting It becomes very achievable. And ultimately these people will act. Uh, and, and then that's when I'm helping them, you know, it's, you know, there was a sister where I was working with her and, you know, she, Hey, do you know uh, a black owned management company? Like, boom, I got you. You know, do you know a, um, uh, a, a black owned uh, insurance company that that can, you know, put together their insurance for my property. Boom. I got you. Like whatever you need. Like I, I know, I know because I've been in the business for so long on, on multiple sides of it mm -hmm. um, and helping people put together those relationships. And, and that's really the fun part for me is really helping people to be their deal architect. Like, like let's break this down. Like you got 300,000 and you don't want business partners. Like, let me show you how you're not going to own a hotel. <laughs> you know, you got a hundred thousand and you're and you're open to taking on partners. Like, let me show you what this looks like. Okay, you got you got a hundred in cash, you got a home equity line of credit. This person got their self-directed IRA. You all roll that up together. Here's your management company. Like, here's the brand that's looking for you, and they'll give you some incentives. Like, let's really let's let's make your equity stack look, you know, a, a very achievable and ultimately go out here and execute. So uh, man. Because I was actually going to tell you that I was going to say, I don't know if you have like an online course or something, but I, this this is this has been and I'm not saying that just because you're here. This has been one of my favorite episodes because I feel like I really just got an education. Like I have a a, a page full of notes here um, mm -hmm. because it's, it's something I really didn't know too much about. Um, you know, even being in real estate, as long as I've been in real estate, I really don't know too much about the hotel business other than the consumer side. Right. So this has been, uh, man, a full education for me. I was going to ask you, do you have like an online course and maybe you should create an online course, but you said that you're creating a nonprofit, right? So what does that nonprofit look like and how does someone, you know, um, get information about the nonprofit? 
Yeah, so it's uh, lodgingeducation.com, lodgingeducation.com. So um, well, how'd you get that domain name? I know, bro. Somebody, I call somebody slipping. Call somebody <laughs> slipping. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was surprised that it was available too. And I was just like, oh, you know what? Look at God. I, you know, <laughs> that was definitely the ancestors looking out for me. But it it made sense, right? Because again, I come from a family of educators. I too, I, I teach adjunct at the college level, undergraduate and graduate. Like I'm passionate about this industry. I want to give back. So lodgingeducation.com is really focused on working with those people who are fiscally uh, capable of doing it, right? So you do launching a cohort of folks where we walk you through a deal, A to Z, and you know we work you through the deal. The biggest thing is, is that, so you have some people, so there are courses out there that you can buy on hotel ownership, but mine is really focused on like giving the people who can execute specifically as a general partner, not just as a limited partner. You can be a limited partner and invest in a hotel, some people are taking, you know, uh, $25,000 equity slugs. Some people are taking 50,000 equity slugs. Like it, it depends on kind of, you know, just being in that space. But I want people who want to go out there and be a GP, who, who wants to be the general partner and do it the right way and learn and, and, and really set it up so that because there's you can end up having a situation where you have, you know, capitalism that's just in a melanated face. And that's not what we're necessarily looking for. We want people who, you know, have a consciousness to it. And say, you know, we're out here trying to do this partnership with this HBCU and really grow. Because, like, we, these HBCUs have hospitality programs. Yeah, they do. They do. They do. Right? So it's like, how are we, you know, work? let's work with them. Let's figure out a strategy so we can get that that talent, you know, fast-tracked and pipeline, and we can partner together. So that way we have the capital, and then we have the operations intellect. Um, but, yeah, so so that's a bit. So that's what now is really focused on is really, you know, architecting these deals for folks putting them in the right position, uh, the right way. If folks are willing to learn, if, if you're kind of looking for that quick fix um, and, and you can take a course, you know, there there's other courses out there. Uh, but, you know, if you're really looking to do that deep dive and ultimately execute as a general partner at that high level, that that's who I'm really focused on. Because at the end of the day, there are a bunch of entities. They're sitting on the sideline waiting to see what happens with these communities. Right. So they and they don't have the time. And I mean, specifically like the brands and some other entities, they don't necessarily have the time to really, um, you know, sit down and educate you. And they also can't. Right. Just because they're publicly traded companies, you kind of get into their returns projections and all that other type of stuff. They can't really do that. So somebody has to do that. Somebody has to do the education and just can't be information. It has to be actionable intelligence, which is the information. Okay, so uh, with that being said, what does the the person looking to be a general partner? What does that look like uh, in terms of like income assets? Like, what should what should someone get themselves to um, to be taken serious, um, wanting to move forward and becoming a GP in a deal? Yeah, yeah. So I, I say the biggest thing is educating yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second the second thing is you need to be able to put together at least a million dollars. Not that that does again. That doesn't have to be you. That could be you with a hundred thousand. And you got, you know, a friend with 250 and, you know, you all, you know, cobble it together and it comes up to a million dollars. You can act and you can be extremely dangerous with a million dollars in this game. Right. But the thing is, like, I just like to be honest with people and let them know, like, in order to play at the GP level, that's what it that's what it really looks like. So all of that kind of, you know, you have to be an accredited investor and that type of stuff. It's funny if you ask a lot of hotel owners, are they accredited investors? They'll look at you sideways. Sideways. They've never heard of it. 
<laughs> right. So that was kind of like, you know, you, you know, that was like a little bit of a, a misdirection from certain people. Like, oh, you you have to be an accredited investor to invest in these asset classes. You do not. Right. Um, now, certain brands do have net worth requirements. And I walk people through all of that. Like, how do you not waste your time chasing the wrong deal? Because a lot of people, they haven't acted because they just don't know. They just mm -hmm. don't know what they're looking at. And I mean, I've met brothers and sisters that are capitalized like seven, eight figures in the bank. And mm -hmm. it's not an issue of the money. It's not the access to capital for them. They just don't have access to the information. So if you are getting money from car washes, from, from you know, uh, quick service restaurants, from these other entities, from crypto, from whatever, but you don't understand the segment, it's going to be difficult for you to make a seven-figure gamble. Yeah. Right? yeah. right? You know what I'm saying? You you need some education so you can feel like it's it's a cal it's a calculated uh, risk. Okay. Man, listen, this, this has been phenomenal brother like I, I i feel like i got a master class um in the industry like a short master class in the industry a couple more questions before we get out of here the yeah. first one is in this journey from where you started to where you are now what would you say is uh the biggest hurdle or hurdle that you had to overcome you know personally to get you where you are now where you're very knowledgeable and you you know you know this stuff like what would the, say the biggest hurdle was for you man um the, the biggest hurdle has really just been, you know, you know, obviously a maneuvering through the imposter syndrome, right? Like just there's not a lot of people that look like me that do what I do. When it comes to hotel brokers, there's only about three other black ones that I know of, at least. Um, so so that's that. Uh, the other piece is always, always creating the time to learn. Right. So, you know, you know, I also have a family. Right. I also teach. I also have other interests. You know, I'm also, you know, chasing my own deals to invest in. So, you know, making sure that you're always finding time to stay current, to stay relevant. But the, the, the biggest obstacle has just always been, um, you know, for me and I start to conquer it over the last two years was really finding time. How do I set up a mechanism so that I can educate these communities? And, you know, that's what lodgingeducation.com is about, right? Getting over that obstacle and making sure these folks have that information so that they can go out there and and do it and do it at the highest level. Yeah. Um, and the next question, that, that's that's a great answer, by the way. That imposter syndrome, I think all of us suffer from that at times. Um, mm. The next question I have is, what is your favorite book or book that's inspired you along this journey? Man, my favorite book and probably the most inspirational was the Autobiography of Malcolm X nice i mean that that book it has a lot to do with self-discovery it has a lot to do with evolution and again strategic skill acquisition everything that he went through made him who he was right to to the point where you know you have el haj malik shabazz you know coming evolving from a detroit red yeah. that is a serious level of evolution for a man who died you know you know sub 60 years old Mm -hmm. Right. So you start thinking about what that means for the evolution of self, for you always taking yourself seriously and refining yourself and putting yourself and, and that you you don't have to always be a product of your environment. You can be a purpose. And for me, that was, you know, how can I be of purpose to for my environment? How can I be of service? And um, and that book, I mean, it just had it just had a lot of great game about self-discovery. A lot yeah. of it. And, you know, it's it's also it's really some good. And, th and those are all applicable to the business world, too. Right. You know, knowing who you are and being, you know, comfortable with evolving and building relationships and continuing to, to evolve in those relationships. You know, what's interesting about that is like, you know, and we've mentioned this on previous shows, like that that's one of my favorite books. My partner, Corey, is one of his favorite books. And we've had people mention that book. But what's, what's to me, which is most interesting about that book 
is when someone tells you what they took from the book or why that book is one of their favorites, it's always something different. Yeah. And that shows you how powerful a book it is. People, t people read the book and love the book, but they, something different resonates with, you know, um, I guess it's the power of literature in general, but that specific book, there's so many gems in it that people take away all kinds of different things. Man, listen, so this has been amazing. Last question I have for you in general is this, though. Um, you are the hotel broker. You can put the deals together. Um, you know, you're consulting all those things. Do you invest in um, the hotels yourself? Like, do you do you try to like get into deals on that side of the uh, the table? Absolutely. 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 Okay. And, um, you know, for me, it's, you know, participating in that as a limited partner. And, um, you know, the next role is, you know, kind of moving and chasing the right deal so, so that I can, you know, move into the general partner. And I mean, it's into the general partner seat. It's important. It's important. You know, like I said, from the tax benefits, you know, the wealth strategy creation, you know, we're, it's, it's, you know, my girls are growing up knowing about hotel ownership, right? Mm, they, that's powerful. It's, it's very, it's very unique. It's very unique. And the conversations that they're able to have and, you know, they, you know, I'm not big into sports, but I mean, it's funny, you know, my daughter, she reads the back of the Hilton room key. She knows all the brands. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, so that, you know, that that's that, that that's important to me. So my personal investment thesis is I'm looking for economy branded hotels. Um, I'm I prefer to stay sub five million dollars and uh, and secondary and tertiary markets. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I specifically want to do something that can be converted into economy extended stay. Right. So keep in mind, I underwrite deals all day, every day. Mm hmm. I've seen thousands of hotel valuations cross my desk. Like, so I know, I know what it is. I know what these numbers mean. I know what it looks like. Uh, so that's why when I talk to people, they, you know, a lot of people, it takes them a while to kind of shake out of the, the consumer mentality of, well, I, I really wanted to have a boutique resort. And it's just like, let me tell you how you make a million dollars. You start out with $3 million. You build a boutique resort that you don't know how to operate. <laughs> And there you go. <laughs> right? It's learn the game, learn the fundamentals. Look at these REITs. These REITs are owning economy extended stays. These REITs are yeah. owning quality ends and Howard Johnson's. Yeah. You know I mean, and they got economists on the payroll. Yeah. They got all sorts of analysts and 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 it's good enough for them. And they understand how to build a portfolio. Your cash flow is going to come from the economy stuff. The the larger stuff, the sexier stuff, you really make your money when you sell it. So, you know, you got to have things all where you got to have your, your portfolio built correctly, just like folks that are in the residential side. You got your flips going on and then you got your, your holds where you got your cash flow coming out of. Right. Yeah. So you but it's you it's the same thing on the hotel side. So when you and that's the thing that I help people do is really help them build their portfolio because you're not getting into this just for one. I hope mm. not. We're not doing that. Um, you know, we got a lot of catching up to do. So when you start talking about. Uh, you know, really evolving is okay. This is not just your first one. Your first one needs to set you up on how do you get your next two to three to four. Got you, got you. So, so do you help people find opportunities as limited partners as well? Like, if someone says, "Well, I'm not ready for the GP yet, but I do want to get involved as an LP," do you help them find any sort of uh, plays that way? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There, there's people that I I send them to uh, that I recommend that okay. that I kind of trust. Uh, and that's a big thing, too. There's a lot of people out there that are, you know, they want to position themselves as a GP and the asset manager for a deal, but they don't know the industry. And that's so dangerous. That is so dangerous. They may have another skill set. They may know real estate, residential, whatever. And it's all going to jump in the hotels and apply the same thing. And it's just like and it's it, it may work for a little bit, but it, it eventually catches up to you. So the folks that I refer people to, 
Uh, these are folks that I know that I've vetted, that I've worked with, that I've seen, you know, okay, they came from the industry and they jumped into the GPC and they did it the right way. Like they know what they're talking about and they're not getting taken advantage of by the management companies. Cause that's what I see a lot of uh, is folks getting, getting taken advantage of. So a lot of people do that. And, and the issue that some people have with raising capital for hotel deals is that I'll just say it out here. Sometimes people don't know you for hotels. Yeah. Right. If you've been out here selling Noonie juice and vacuum cleaners, <laughs> and then you came to them to invest in some in some, in some Bitcoin and a multifamily deal. And now I'm not knocking the hustle like you a hustler. But, you know, but people don't know you for hotels and you start talking about twenty five thousand, fifty five thousand dollar investment. And it's going to be like, ah. I, I don't know you like, you know, you don't have and you don't have the the skill set to get people comfortable with. That's the biggest obstacle. A lot mm -hmm. of people they try to jump into the GPC. They think that they could they do it because they did it from another sector. And I'll be honest with you, they can't find investors to believe in them. They don't know what it is, but that's the disconnect. The investors. So do you think that someone should before becoming a GP probably start as an LP to kind of like get their foot in and learn? Or do you think that it's possible just to jump to GP? Like, what, what would be your recommendation for someone who, who's never been in this business, but they, they're interested? They may watch this interview. They may be interested. Do you yeah. think they should start with an LP first just to kind of like get their foot in and learn the business first? If you don't have the capital, absolutely. Start out as an LP. If you have the capital and you feel comfortable that you can put together the money, start out as a GP. And the reason I say start out as a GP is because you'll have a much better experience. You will have a much better. It's always better at the top. Um, you know, what did Les Brown say? I'm trying to get to the top because it's too crowded at the bottom, Damn. right? So, you know, and, and as a GP, you just learn a lot more because you're having the direct conversations. Now, if you're a GP with no experience, you do need to hire consultants and your consultants will be folks like myself and asset managers. Like you need to, it's going to cost you a little bit more to do a deal because you want to make sure you do it the right way, but you can do a GP. You can, you can GP it the, your first time out. You absolutely can. But the issue is a lot of people run into it, they just can't raise the capital. And what would hope say we don't believe you, you need more people. There you go. Like, you know, it's you you gotta you gotta be able to get people comfortable with investing with you. So so you talked about the requirements, like capital requirements as an um, as a GP, but if someone just has like so what would be like an LP? How much would you need to jump in as an LP? Uh it depends on the deal and it depends on your relationship with, with the sponsor. So I've seen People taking LP uh, equity slugs as low as ten thousand, um, you know, and or I've seen ten, twenty five, fifty thousand. I've okay. seen it. I've seen it vary, uh, and it depends on your relationship with the person, right? Gotcha. If you have a relationship and a rapport with that person, they might let you in for ten thousand, although the minimum is twenty five. But for the most part, most people, the average that I've seen is usually anywhere from twenty five to fifty, and I know that's a pretty big swing. Mm -hmm. But again, if you have twenty five to fifty. Um, you know, you, you might, uh, there's also the other strategy and what I'm, what I'm advocating for is people being patient, learning the business, getting to, you know, building up their, their network so that you have, you know, 150, 250, you know, 500,000, half a million between you and your partners. And then maybe you go and you can, um, you can step to somebody else and be a co-GP. Maybe you say, Hey, me and my partners, we have 500,000 between the two of us. And then that GP may be like, well, come on, we could be co-GP and now I only got to raise half a million. Like that's that's attractive. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's all sorts of tips and tricks out there. So to answer your question, it, it depends on how patient you are. Um, but a lot of people, they're, they're trying to rush and they're trying to skip the steps. And um, and that's cool, too. But, you know, just understand that you're going to end up paying those dues on the back on the back. end. Yeah. And you kind of answered this. And this is the very last question I have. But you kind of answered it. But, you know. 
I ask again. What, so first and foremost, I want to say thank you for this entire conversation because I'm like like fired up right now. Like I feel like I've got a full education. Now I'm ready to like figure out what are more resources I can go to to learn more. Right? Because this is this is very interesting to me because it's a whole different world. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't even want to ask you. Probably end up. I don't want to you know be on here another hour. I don't even want to ask you about like you know when you add the the part of like casinos into it. So I'm gonna leave that part alone. But um, <laughs> what does the future look like for you and your business? What do you see yourself doing in the future? Yeah. So so for me, it's uh, continuing to grow and evolve with the industry. And uh, my my big passion is always going to be continue to try to find ways to bring equity and inclusion to hotel ownership. That's uh, that's the drum that I beat that I march to. So for me, it's really focusing on lodgingeducation.com, uh, growing that cohort, you know, and having success stories come out of it. Having folks being like, yo, I came from this other industry and I learned this. And, you know, me and my husband jumped out and bought that quality. And me and my me and my girlfriend, you know, we put together our money. We got we you know, we delayed the wedding and we you know, we got married and then we did it at the Ramada. Right. Like it's those type of stories that you're going to start to hear more and more out of our community. Um, that's what the future looks like for me is, is being in the center of all of those conversations and being that guy that's really helping to plug folks in that, that you do it the right way, um, that you're going into it the right way, that you, you're not unnecessarily taking these L's and these lumps. Um, it, because there's people out here that are going to prey on you. They mm -hmm. are going to prey on you. And if you don't know what you're doing, it, it, it can hurt. So, you know, just be prepared to, um, to look for advice. And I want to continue to be that advisor. Man, listen, this this has been uh, one of my favorite episodes, I, I swear to you. But, and I appreciate your time. Um, for our folks out there watching, I'm going to make sure I put links to, uh, you know, all of Omari's stuff. You see his uh, at name right there, the Hip Hop Hotel Broker. So make sure you go follow him um, and, and, and check him out and see everything he has going on. Reach out to him if you have any questions. But this has been a, a phenomenal episode. So first and foremost, I just want to say, well, I should say in closing, I want to say um, much continued success. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for sharing your time, telling your story and giving us an education on an industry that I'm pretty sure a lot of us, um, well, statistically speaking, most of us have no idea about. Right. Mm -hmm. Most of us aren't really in this industry, but um, this has been phenomenal, brother. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your, uh, your knowledge. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for uh, lending your microphone and the platform, my brother. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. And we we shall talk in the future, man, because now I got to I got to put some plays together, man. I, you know, if, not, if nothing else for my ego, I just want to say, uh, you know, I'm in the hotel business. <laughs> you know, we want to make sure that, that you're in it profitably. I know, I know, I know. I'm, just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking, everybody. I'm just joking. Sure, but, you know, but 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 again, though, um, you know, it's phenomenal. And, and to your point, something you said earlier, I was thinking as you're we talking, I was thinking I remember when um, Bob Johnson got into the hotel business. And he bought like, um, you know, some of those brands. And I always yeah. wondered, I'm like, well, why didn't he just start his own? Like I, that was just in the background. I didn't, I didn't know any better. But now after sitting here listening to you now, all that, like, so many things are falling into place and starting to make sense now. When you see and, these and, hedge funds and these yeah. guys who have millions and they're like, go buy a Marriott. And you're like, you know, I always wondered like, why not just do your own thing? But now I get it. Right. And, and I'll break down that, that Bob. And here's the reason why ownership is so important. Bob Johnson, he sold BET for what was it like three billion or something? Mm -hmm. What most people don't know uh, that that you were talking about, Jimmy, is that he turned around and bought like a hundred, one hundred and fifty hotels from White Lodging um, for about I think it was like one point five billion or something. Created mm -hmm. a real estate investment trust. A REIT ultimately became publicly traded. Here's the super dope part about that: is that that company has now had three CEOs, three CEOs. They're on the black third. Woman, I know a black woman's there now, right? 
That's correct. She started out. He when he opened the company, she was the chief financial officer. He had a white male as the COO and a black man as a CEO. Now, that's the power that you have when you have ownership, because that is the that kind of trumps the conversation of, you know, we can't find diverse talent. We can't find a black man founded a company, found a black CEO and a black CFO. And now he and now that black woman is elevated to be CEO. That's the power that you have. That's why it's so important. Other companies are claiming that they can't find these people. How did he do it twice? Yeah. Right? Yep. Like, so people are out there um, and that's the power of ownership. And that's the power of us educating ourselves on what this ownership looks like to create jobs and opportunities. Yeah. And I think it's one of the biggest takeaways I have outside of all the education you gave me is that um, the job creation and the opportunities you can provide for others. Yeah. You know, they can, you know, they can make money and take care of their family and then, you know, pass that on and, and you create generational wealth in a whole different way Absolutely. so with that being said man listen I, again you know in closing just someone say thank you brother i'll put all of your uh, information within the show notes as well as the description so make sure you um check out everything he's got going on as you can see this brother this brother knows his stuff so this has been amazing but again i just want to say thank you so much for your time for our audience out there as we always say it's not about how much money you make it's about how much you keep game elevates we appreciate and love you guys and we will see you in our next episode but thank you so much for tuning in to this episode and if you're listening thank you as well just want to say peace